Okay, today is January the 27th. <laughs> they, they all help me. And that is uh, Thursday. You'll remember tomorrow is Friday night at the movies. Now, we got a really good movie. So I hope that y'all will show up. It's got Gary Cooper in it. Has to do with uh, some of it has to do with legalism in churches, and it's pretty funny some parts of it. Anyway, <clears throat> that starts at what six thirty? Yeah, the, the movie starts at seven. So <clears throat> keep that in mind. Okay, let's prepare ourselves in our usual fashion. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer, rebound if necessary. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for another day of your grace, another opportunity for us to grow. We thank you for your mighty word and giving us the ability to understand it through the grace system of perception. You don't leave any stones unturned when it comes to teaching us and helping us to grow. So we pray that you will help us to focus and not let our minds drift this evening. For we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. I got a, an article that kind of caught my eye, just a few paragraphs here. <clears throat> has to do with the technology craze that we are in. And I was thinking, you know, this just really won't fly all that well with this group. But it is something that I think you need to be aware of. Does anybody here have an iPhone? One? One iPhone in the bunch. That's what I'm talking about. <laughs> Oh, well, yeah, I mean, you're talking about the younger people. This is the uh, older group, more mature. <laughs> anyway, this is about technology, and if you don't have an iPhone, and I don't have an iPhone, I thought I was in high cotton when I got one of those uh, cell phones that flip open. had that old kind for a long time, but anyway. This is, uh, there was an article in Wired magazine by Kevin Kelly. And Kelly said that he's come to see technology as a different source for understanding where we are in the cosmos. I think we're we are in the or excuse me, I think technology is something that can give meaning to our lives, particular in the secular world. So according to him, technology is going to give meaning to our lives. For Kelly and many like him, technologies like the Internet, the iPhone, and cloud computing, well, I know, y'all don't know what that is, probably. Some of us do. <laughs> uh, cloud computing, eventually they are on the verge of doing away with Internet servers, and everything is just going to be in a cloud. It's just you don't go to Google or Yahoo or something, uh, you will just have a number or something, and it's all up there in the cloud. And well, anyway, let's not get off too on that, too far on that. Uh, so, <clears throat> iPhone and cloud uh, computing have not merely created functional utility and convenience, but have provided a reason to live, <laughs> a definition of where we are in the cosmos. This is a stunning, troublesome admission. If we are alone in the universe, no God, no ultimate truth, then how can flying faster through a meaningless universe or communicating instantly with others about things that don't matter give any real meaning to our lives? Absent the ultimate and objective truth that God exists and has communicated His Word to us, we sadly are left to worship innovation rather than the master innovator. Kind of reminds me of Romans 1. <clears throat> Excuse me. 
Kelly and other tech gurus are beginning to argue the case for viewing our minds, values, and ideas as purely digital impulses on a computer model or as posting on a social network. But this, <coughs> this position introduces a problem many of us saw with the rise of video games and cyber communications, a subtle drift away from the real stuff of the world designed by a personal creator God. We live in a universe created by a sovereign Lord where violation of his rules have genuine and serious consequences. When ideas are no longer anchored to the belief of objective, that objective truth exists, we have no reason to seek God's truth or his reality. Any transitory subjective truth or reality will do, even one based on computer chips and wireless networks. Now, that would resonate a lot better if we were all in our teens, our early 20s or whatever. But this is a real issue with the younger generation. I mean, you take away their electrical device and trauma starts happening. Okay, let's get to our knitting here. We're in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 through 12. I hope you have your thinking hats on because we are going to go a little deeper this evening. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 11 and 12. You can go in your Bible or you can look up here. To this end also we pray for you always that Uh, something I got. I think I'm too big on the um, on the let me go about in between here. Let's try 115. What was I talking about? Technology a while ago. Okay. To this end also we pray for you always that our God may count you worthy of your calling. Worthy of your calling. Very important phrase. We're going to look into that. And fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with power in order that the name of our Lord Jesus may be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we won't even get out of the first verse tonight, let me tell you that already. And we've already touched on it a bit, but there are some things that I have never taught before that I'm going to teach tonight. So we all need to stay plugged in. So it says, to this end also, the question is, is to what end? And it all has to do with Jesus Christ being glorified. And the Thessalonians were being persecuted, persecuted but they could still glorify Christ. And we pray for you always. We looked at this already, pros ukamai, and we have all these verses here, 1 Thessalonians 1, 2, Romans 1, 9 through 10, Philippians 1, 3 through 4, Colossians 4, 12, Philemon 1, 4, all having to do with prayer for other saints. And re remember the, what we see every time, always praying. It is a habitual, constantly ongoing process of praying for others. We all need to remember that and spend time every day in prayer for others because we all certainly need it. Even though the epistle that we're in, Second Thessalonians is small, four times Paul prays for those who he's writing to. That our, that our God may count you and to count you worthy of your calling. We have a, a similar verse in verse 5 of Second Thessalonians chapter 1. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right. As a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. Worthy, worthy. What is this worthiness all about? Being worthy of the kingdom of God or being worthy of your calling. And what is the calling? In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, it says, As a prisoner for the Lord, then I urge you to live a life 
worthy of the calling you have received. Same terminology we have in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 11. Worthy of your calling. So what does this mean, this worthy? And I have just a phrase here that says, we are called by the gospel and then we are called to be conformed to the image of God's Son. And then I talk about being experientially sanctified. Now, we, we looked at 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14. And I spent at least eight hours today on these two verses and gleaned more and more from them because I thought the hard part was going to be when I got to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. But I was broadsided in verse 11 of chapter 1 to substantiate it or to help you fully understand it. I was going to go to uh, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 13 through 14. And so I'm facing some of this, some of the hard things now because they're pertinent with what we're trying to figure out with regards to this verse. This is a very difficult verse, these two. But we ought always to thank God for you, brothers, loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in truth. He called you to this through our gospel that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. I was looking at this from the perspective of the, the, the uh, saved... <clears throat> Excuse me. God chose you to be saved through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, as you know, this word saved, sozo, soteria, sometimes salvation, can mean not just eternal salvation. More often than not, it's not talking about eternal salvation. It's not talking about that which is salvific. It's just talking about deliverance. And so when we see this, the first thing that comes to mind, brothers loved by the Lord, because from the beginning God chose you to be saved. What kind of saved? Well, most people will jump to the idea of it being salvific. Is it true that God chose us to be saved salvifically? Yeah, it's true. But did he also choose us to be saved not salvifically, but experientially. Well, we're going to look into that. And then it says, through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. Now, is this sanctifying work what we might say call positional sanctification? Or you might call it judicial sanctification? Because we are set apart permanently, positionally, judicially, when we believe in Jesus Christ. Is that the work that he's talking about here? Or is it talking about the sanctifying work that goes on as we are experientially sanctified in our experience here on earth as we are growing? Is it talking about being sanctified that way or in a point in time? Then we look at it and it says the sanctifying work of the Spirit and through belief in the truth. Well, again, what is it talking about? Is it talking about believing the truth of the gospel and being sanctified judicially in a point of time? Or is it talking about being delivered during our time on earth and being sanctified experientially because we believe the truth? In this case, it would be the truth that if we do grow up spiritually, if we do endure to the end, that we're going to reap great benefits, rewards and decorations that are going to last for all eternity. See, you're not going to be experientially sanctified if you don't believe that. Because just trying to be a good person will not carry the day. Because it has to be a supernatural power that enables you to stay the course. And you have to believe that or there's no real motivation in it. You can see why these, this is a difficult verse. And then verse 14. He called you to this. To what? Being saved in a point in time, salvifically? Or did he call you to be experientially sanctified, to grow up so that you can glorify Christ? He called you to this through our gospel. 
Well, we have a problem with the gospel here also. Because what is the gospel? What does it mean? You, Angelian. Good news. Was he talking about the good news that you can believe in Jesus Christ and be saved? Or is he talking about the good news that if you persevere, that God will produce everything for you, including the power, everything for you to be rewarded in decoration, for you to have an inheritance that is incorruptible and cannot perish in, in heaven? Which, which, which good news is it talking about here? Now you can see why I spent eight hours trying to figure this out. That you, and here it is, here's the purpose clause. This is the Hati clause, H-O-T-I. That you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now there's the key. You see the key there? This is everything that goes on before this. Now it says that you might share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, there will be some who would argue that everyone is going to share in the glory of Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, then you're going to share in his glory. Well, certainly Jesus Christ is glorified because of what he did for every person on the cross. But this says that you're going to be glorified or to share in the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Is every believer going to share in his glory because of what he's done on planet Earth? Not so. In fact, most of them will not. So, this is where our lesson starts for tonight. This is lesson 16. And I start with a quote. It's from uh, Christian Theology Grand, uh, in Grand Rapids, uh, Millard Erickson. And he says, quote, We will get to this verse shortly, but it is important to note a few things about it here. When Paul thought about Christian salvation, he thought it as a word with three tenses. Now, we only have three tenses in the English. We have a past event, a present experience, and a future hope. Now, the notes that are going to follow that I'm going to teach you tonight is dealing with this. Because unfortunately, most people, even people who are studying the Bible, most people when they're thinking about salvation, their mind only deals with the past, the past fact. That would be the past event. In other words, the point in which they believed in Jesus Christ. For all believers, that is in the past. And unfortunately, that's all that people seem to concentrate on today is what took place when they believed in Jesus Christ. And they, they fail to recognize that there is a salvation which is a present experience and a salvation which is a future hope. Now some of you can relate to this to a degree because you realize that we've already... Um, gone past the issue of the penalty of sin. No, no, no believers on the penalty of sin. And presently, we have the power or we have the ability to be past the power of sin. And eventually, we will be away from the presence of sin. That kind of goes with this a little bit. And you also can relate the fact that we were positionally or judicially set apart by God the moment that we believed in Jesus Christ. Past issue. Also, we are in the process of being experientially sanctified. Well, some are, most aren't. That means in our experience, we have the opportunity. God has given us the tools, everything necessary in order for us to be set apart for special blessings experientially here in time. With the hope that eventually we will be ultimately sanctified, set apart to God in a permanent sense in eternity. So we have at least something to measure this against. At least it's not something that it's completely foreign to us. We all are already on board with, with that part. 
But the term progressive salvation is foreign to us to a degree because we realize that salvation is salvific salvation is in a point in time, aorist tense. There's nothing progressive about it. And there's nothing wrong with that, but we're looking back at what happened. But what so much of the New Testament is talking about is what happens after that? What's going on after that? There are so many believers that are buried there. They threw their anchor out there, and to them, that's all that exists. Don't tell me anything else. I always go back to my experience. What's happening in the present? Well, not much. What's going to happen in the future? It's a mystery. I have no idea. That's where most people are. But they have no excuse because the Bible covers it in depth. So Paul uses the three tenses of salvation in Romans chapter 5, verse 1 through 2. I don't want to belabor this and go to the verse, but I've got the highlight here. Believers were, quote, in that verse, justified through faith. That is the, in the past, what happened. And they stand in grace, which is presently what's happening. And they have hope of the glory of God, which is in the future. Now, salvation isn't even mentioned in this verse. And yet it's talking about three segments. What happened in the past, what's happening now, and what will happen in the future. Now I'm going to go to God's call here because in our verse, remember right here, it says, <clears throat> did I go too far? Yeah, here it is. Um, he called you to this. We're talking about the call of God. So let's look at it. Let's look at this call. God's call. I'm going to give you three ways that God's call comes to us. First of all, His call comes to be eternally saved through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Matthew 11:28. Come to me all you who are weary and burdened or heavy laden in some cases, and I will give you rest. This isn't talking about if you're working hard that He's going to give you a break. This is talking about the rest of trying to be approved by God by your own works. It's talking about struggling, doing something in order to be good enough to go to heaven. You don't have to do that. He can give you rest. Matthew 22, 9. Go therefore to the main highways, and as many as you find, invite. That word invite there is kaleo. It means to call. And call to the wedding feast. Now this is the gospel call that is going out to everyone. Mark sixteen fifteen, And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to all creation. This is the call that is going out in order to save salvifically, to give eternal life to those who are spiritually dead. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9. God, I put that in brackets because it's understood. You'd know if you were looking at the verse before. God who has saved us and called us with a holy calling. That word holy there comes from, from hagios, which is where we get the word saint, sanctification, sanctified. All comes from that root word. So we have he saved us, <coughs> notice saved, past tense and called us with a holy calling. Now one way to look at this is that those of us who are saved answered this call, the gospel call, but this says and he saved us and called us with a holy calling. Now what is this holy calling? I'm not going to go into that that deep at this point, but there is a calling outside of just this main call, this invitation to accept the gospel. But see, a lot of people, they think that's the only call that goes out. That's all there is. Well, we're going to see there's more. Those who answer this call are positionally, are judicially saved and can never be condemned. I'm going to use more and more. I, positionally, I've, I've talked about positional sanctification and being being righteous, have God's righteousness in a positional sense and so forth, which is fine, but I was reading something from someone the other day and they called it judicial. And I like that also, judicial. In a judicial sense, 
We are perfect before God. Because God is perfect. He's not going to let anybody that's not perfect into His heaven. So mankind has a problem. But what happens when we believe in Jesus Christ? Romans chapter 4, verse 5. you remember how many times we said that? Y'all remember that? Some of you are groaning in your own soul right now. To the one who does not work, but believes on him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as what? Righteousness. We're perfect. We're ready to go to heaven because of what God has done for us, which has made us perfect by giving us His righteousness judicially. See, the Catholic Church doesn't understand this, and so they have this fairy tale about a place called purgatory where after a person who believes in Jesus Christ, they have to go there in order to be purged, to be uh, qualified to get into heaven. I can't even... The words that I would like to use to describe that I can't use in this setting. Because they don't understand imputed righteousness. You see, even if God took away our sins, which He did on the cross, and we have no sins, are we ready to go to heaven? No! We're a far cry from being qualified to go to heaven. We are qualified because of faith. Over and over it says faith is the reason that we receive eternal life. Faith is the reason that we have God's own righteousness. So those who answer this call that goes out, the evangelical call of the gospel, are judicially saved and can never be condemned. Here we have it in the past tense. Look at this, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace, what does this say? You have been saved. That's a perfect tense. That means that you were saved in the past and the results go on forever. And it's also in the passive voice. It's not something you do, it's something you receive. For by grace you have been saved. So that's a past event. Through faith, and that not of yourself is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Now, here's the second part, and this is the call that goes out. This is the second. Now, the first call goes out for the salvific call to be saved. Now, the second call has to do with to grow to spiritual maturity by being experientially sanctified. This is where a lot of people miss the boat. They don't understand that they are required to do this. They are called to do this. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 7, For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. We are called to live a holy life. And part of that being holy, in fact, you can't live a holy life and not be experientially sanctified. Philippians chapter 3, verse 13 through 14. I love this verse. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind. When you rebound, forget whatever you confess. It is gone as far as the east is from the west. And Paul is, did Paul ever mess up? I'm talking about after he was saved, did he ever mess up? Yes, he did big time. He came close to dying for some of the boneheaded things he did. And I can say that about Paul because he was a person. He was human. He had always sin nature. But he says, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, and look at this, straining for what is ahead. What's ahead? Straining. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has what? called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. He's straining to meet the call. Is he straining to try to be try to get to heaven? Well he no, he's we already saw that in the first one. That call was already answered. When you believe in Jesus Christ, that's a done deal. That call has been answered. But we're talking about this second call. What happens after you're saved? Is there a call for that? Well absolutely there is. 
I press on towards the goal and win the prize. What is the prize? What are you talking about here? He's talking about rewards, isn't he? He wants to get the goodies here on earth as well as for all eternity. Super grace blessing. Straining. There's effort in that. Now, this appears in scriptures as a progressive salvation. Now, I know some of you don't like that term. But I'm going to show you. It's there. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. Are the world of the excuse me the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, a present experience it is the power of God. Now I hasten to say this has nothing to do with salvific salvation. This is an experiential salvation. We are in the process of being saved. We are in the process of being experientially sanctified. We are in the process of being prepared to take care of duties in what's next when Christ returns. We are in the process of that. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God, the word of the cross. 2 Corinthians 2.15 for we are a fragrance of Christ to God among those who are being saved, a present experience, and among those who are perishing. In other words, when it says, for we are a fragrance, you could just say, we are a smell. Now, a smell can be good or bad. For believers, we who are being saved in the process of being delivered from the lies of Satan and from our old sin nature. We are being delivered. We are a fragrance. See? We are being saved. We're the fragrance. And among those who are perishing, it's a smell, but it's not a fragrance. It is the smell of death. But to those of us who are, what? Being saved. Being delivered. Being delivered from your futile way of life. Being delivered from divine discipline. Being, being delivered from a completely worthless life. What is your life going to be at, like at the end when you're at the judgment seat of Christ and you've, you've got diplomas on the wall and you have awards over here and you've done all these great things? You can't take those with you. The only thing that is going to matter is whether you have been progressively Saved. Saved from all that. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The reason so many people get this verse, and they even use it as a verse to show that uh, you, you, you don't have eternal security. You have to keep on working for this. See? The reason they do that is because they are trying to play, uh, they're trying to Explain this verse where salvation is not salvific and they try to make it salvific. This is not salvific salvation. This is being delivered in the world as you are being experientially saved from a host of things that from people who are not growing. They have a host of problems. Work out your salvation, a present experience with fear and trembling. Work it out. Do you see the, the word work in there? You never see that word associated with a salvific type of salvation, do you? This is experiential. Now, to be ultimately sanctified, reflecting the glory of Christ, this is, this is what we are called to do. Salvation in its fullest sense. I think I have a, a, a number problem here. This should be number three. Okay. Let me change that. Uh, needless to say, I was not a scholar in math. What happened? Oh, here it is. Okay. Here. And I want to put a three there. Okay. To be ultimately sanctified, 
is reflecting the glory of Christ. Salvation in its fullest sense is eschatological. That means it's yet future. We've already got the big deal taken care of. That's past. It's history. It's done. We are in the process of trying to get to that point to where we are going to have rewards and decorations. This is the experiential part. Now, God not only wants us to be delivered through this, but also for all eternity there is a salvation. Romans chapter 13, verse 11. Knowing the time that it is already the hour for you to awaken from your sleep, this is Paul's rather euphemistic way of saying, Wake up, you sluggards! Time is short. You better get with it. That's what he's saying here. To awaken from your sleep for now... And he's talking about here ultimate salvation, a future hope, is nearer to us than we believed. Now, if that was true for them, how much more true is it for us? Hmm? Boy, if I had a message to give, if, if I could go on to knock on doors, are you a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ? Yes, I am. Do you go to church? Well, sometimes. I go every other Sunday, or I go every Sunday. Well, how about Wednesday nights? Well, no, I don't go on Wednesday nights. This was the person I would like to say, wake up! The time is short. This salvation that it's talking about, for, for now, salvation is nearer. This is the ultimate salvation that's going to be in all, for, for all eternity. A future hope is nearer than we believe. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36. For you have need of endurance so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. Well, what was promised? What was promised is the fruit of being experientially sanctified. What is promised is to be delivered, saved, if you will, experientially, so that you can be rewarded for all eternity. First Peter 1.5 is talking about believers here. The, the previous verse uh, certainly substantiates that. Believers who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation, but you see here I have an ultimate salvation, a future hope, ready to be revealed in the last time. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 16. <laughs> Here's another one. Ouch. This is an ouch verse. Play close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Now, this is Paul writing to Timothy. And he was saying, uh, y'all are all teachers too, by the way. You teach your children and you teach your friends things. You say, well, I never held a class. You're teaching them by your attitude, by what you say and how you act. Pay close attention to yourself and to your teaching. Persevere in these things. For as you do this, you will ensure this would be ultimate or uh, salvation, a future hope both for yourselves and for those who hear you. Now, this hits me blunt right in the face. You see, I better be, pay close attention to myself. This is the way I act. This has to do with my own staying in fellowship and to what I teach. He says, persevere in the things that he was teaching them here. As you do this, you will ensure something. You will ensure a salvation, a deliverance that is yet future. Paul's concept of these three tenses of salvation has many implications for the lives of believers. His emphasis on future salvation should challenge the stress that modern evangelicals and fundamentals have placed on past tense salvation. Paul does not allow believers to rest complacently on their conversion. How many believers do you know that have done that? Well, I believed in Christ and I'm going to heaven. Well, that's great. What do you do in the meantime? Well, I don't have to do nothing. I'm going to heaven. Well, that's great. What are you going to be when you be there, when you get there? And what are you going to do at the judgment seat of Christ? What's that? This is a quote. This is by Ashland Theological Journal, Volume 22, The Three Tenses. Quote, For Paul, believers should look forward, not back. 
I've got a re- replication here. They should move forward in cooperation with God's continuing salvation in the present and look forward with anticipation to God's completion of salvation at the parousia when Jesus Christ comes and we see Him face to face. How many of you are looking back? Paul doesn't. Only one time, maybe two, he specifically talks about salvation in the past tense. He talks about it in the present tense a lot more, but he talks about it in the future tense more than any other time. None of us can, by our own effort, become worthy of our calling. We are not capable of doing that, but we can use our volition to avail ourselves of God's grace and power to be transformed by the renewing of our mind into a vessel that is worthy of our calling. You can't say, okay, I'm going to get down to business, I'm going to put my nose to the grindstone, and I'm going to be worthy of God's calling. I'm going to put great effort in it. And I'm going to read my Bible at least 50 verses every day. I'm going to be nice to people, and I'm going to grind it out. How successful do you think that's going to be? How long do you think that will last? (laughs) How long do New Year resolutions last? So, we can avail ourselves of God's grace. He's already got the plan. And graciously, He gives us the power. And we are going to be transformed. We are in the process of our minds being transformed to the image of His Son. That's what we're doing right now. Our minds are being transformed so that we will be a vessel who is worthy of our calling. And no believer who is not being transformed by the renovation of their mind will ever be worthy of their calling. And that eliminates all ignorant believers. Hard-headed, stiff-necked, ignorant believers will not in this life be worthy of their calling. If you're not worthy of your calling, then you're going to have a long, well, not necessarily a long, but you'll have a miserable life, very possibly might die the sin and the death, will be ashamed at the judgment seat of Christ, and will be a peon for all eternity. That's what's in store for most. Philippians 3, 13 through 15. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, strain forward. I already gave you that, didn't I? I didn't know it was here again. I have a verse at the end, though, that I didn't have. I press towards the goal to win the prize for which Christ, for which God has called me, heavenward, in Christ Jesus. All of us who are mature should take such a view of things. And if on some point you think differently, that too God will make clear to you. You know what that means? If you have your own strategy, if you have your own plan, and it doesn't jive with the plan of God and His Word, then over time, God will make that clear to you. No spiritually ignorant believer will be considered worthy of his or her calling. Ignorance is usually the problem. Sometimes it is not ignorance, but failure to apply doctrines they learned to each day's challenges. <coughs> Got me. Nobody here should plead ignorance. It's not that we don't know. You know about the judgment seat of Christ. You know about the potential for rewards and decorations. You know about super grace. You know the importance of it. And I can go over it in a thousand scriptures. But you have volition. And some people, it's not an issue of them not knowing it, that that they don't get it. It's just that they are so used to their old wheel ruts, the way they've always done it. And that's so comfortable for them, they will refuse to change. And you cannot change yourself. It takes the power of God to change those old wheel ruts. You have to depend upon Him. You have to pray to Him. I am so used to doing it this way. This is the only way I've done it. I know I'm supposed to do it over here. 
Help me make new paths of righteousness because I can't do it on myself, by myself. Do you think God's going to answer that prayer? Do you think He's going to withhold power for you to be able to do that? 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11 and 12. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own. I don't know why this is duplicated. That part's duplicated. With his own children. Encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives. Look at this. Worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom and glory. This is what I do all the time from here. I'm, I'm encouraging you. I'm challenging. How many times have you heard me say, we're just practicing for what comes next. The decisions that you make now are going to determine what you're going to be for all eternity. I'm not talking about having access to heaven. I'm talking about being one of those rare gems that can actually reflect the glory of God. That's, what we, that's the whole goal. And Paul is saying, we, being him and his team, dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children. What, does, what should a father do? He should teach. He should encourage. He should praise. And he should discipline when it's necessary. And he says, encouraging, conforming, and urging you to live lives worthy of God who calls you into his kingdom. The Thessalonian believers were suffering for their faith in Jesus Christ, everyone who consistently learns and applies Bible doctrine will experience suffering of one kind or another. When was the last time that you were suffering for the cause of Christ? And if you have, hmm, let me see. And you have to think. It's just like Wolf Brand Chili. Well, that's too long. Remember that? Little guy, they have a hot steaming bowl of Wolf Brand chili. He says, Neighbor, when was the last time you had a thick steaming bowl full of Wolf Brand chili? And then he said, A pause, well, that's too long. Well, it's too long if you have to sit and think about it. It's not easy, it takes effort. It takes effort to live the Christian way of life. Now, oh boy, there's some really good things here that. Uh, I don't know if I want to get into this right now uh, because the goodness uh, if, and fulfill the desire for goodness and, and this goes along with that experiential salvation, that experiential sanctification. All that has to do with goodness. Goodness is one of the fruit of the spirits. Galatians 5.22, you remember that? And we kind of think that it's kind of incidental. But Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says, We were created unto good works. You can't be a success. You can't be preparing for the, the world to come. You can't be saved in a progressive sense if you're not doing good. And you know what? You have to suffer to do good. You know how? Do you all ever notice... Whenever you go to do something for somebody, how much effort it takes. Any, any, even a small thing. You know, the ladies bring pies and cakes and all these things here that they make and cookies and all this. And you go, by, oh, well, that's not, I'll take a bite of that. And you go on, you don't even think about it. Well, that takes effort. It takes time. It takes thought. And you don't know, you might be literal suffering. If it was me, I'd be suffering. I'd have burns all over my hands and I'd have to be rebounding all in the kitchen. <laughs> Doing good deeds. It's Are you like me? Every time I go to do something, it's harder than I thought it was going to be. How many times do you think for yourself, when was the last time you did something you thought, man, that, that was so much easier than I thought it was going to be? Well, it happens sometimes, but what's, it's not the normal thing, is it? And when you go to try to do something for somebody else, it seems like it's doubly hard, doesn't it? Well, we'll get this eudokeia next time. I think the memory banks are pretty full.
So, let's, what, 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 what did we talk about tonight? Start out with technology. <laughs> this was to inform you that the young people especially deal with issues that you don't even know exist. Putting extra emphasis on technology as if that is going to show you where you are in the cosmos and giving you a reason to live. Pathetic. And then we looked at this verse that there are three tenses to salvation. Past, already taking place. We're all saved. That's a done deal. Present experience and a future hope. Now that hope is confidence. And when we get to the goodness part, some more dots hopefully, hopefully will be uh, connected where you'll see a bigger picture. This is what's missing, folks. This is what most Christians don't get. All they know is the past. They know very little of the future, I mean of the present, and for the most part, nothing of future. Most believers don't even know there is such a thing as super grace. They know nothing of rewards and decorations and crowns and privileges and wonderful things that are going to be in heaven for a few. Let's close. Father, we thank you that you are mindful of us that your plan goes much further than just saving our sorry souls from what we deserve. That we have the unspeakable privilege to spend all eternity with our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and that He will come back for us. But even during this time, you don't forsake us. You have a plan for us in the now. And because of your word to do good deeds to fulfill what you would have us to do now because of what you have promised us in the future. Help us to meditate upon these things to the point where others see us, such a change in us that they say, what's with you? And we can tell them about our mighty God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.